Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Well, it's hard to believe, but we are at week number six of our nine-week series that we're in, God on Politics. And um, like oil and water, uh, mixing politics and religion is somewhat ill-advised, and most churches would not attempt to do it. But we're kind of an outside-the-box church here at Grace Crossing Church. And uh, what I really want to commend you for today is the way that you have engaged in this series. I've been so proud of our church and the way that our body has responded uh, to this series. And I've been extraordinarily pleased with how this church has engaged in conversation in a very Christ-centric way in our connection groups. You have done it in a way that does not discredit the gospel and has not dishonored the name of Jesus Christ. And I want to just thank you and commend you. Well done, church. Well done. The second thing I am really surprised about is that we're only 23 days from the election of the next president of the United States of America. How scared are you? Okay. Um, So there's a lot going on in our nation, as we all know. And um, the third presidential debate is coming up here uh, this coming Wednesday. And, and I am, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly glad that it's soon over. How many of you would agree with me? And glad this is going to come to an end, okay? But I will tell you some good news that um, I have, after months of prayer and deliberation, I've reached a conclusion on my decision for President of the United States of America. And more than I've reached a conclusion, I've actually purchased the merchandise. I've got a shirt because I want to actually make sure it's clear who I stand with and where I stand on the side of the issues and the policies. So I went ahead and bought my shirt this year on which side I'm on, okay, for uh, this year's presidential election, okay? How many of you are with me, okay? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So in this series got on politics, uh, we are actually not discouraging us from engaging in politics. We're actually, contrary, encouraging us to do it, but to do it in a more biblically informed manner and with the Spirit of Christ. I think it's really critical that in this series we have not made it our objective to talk about which candidate we should vote for or to which party we should align. But rather, we've been focused on what God has to say about some of the most critical issues that have made their way in the national spotlight and to the, to the national debate stage as it relates to issues in this year's election. And so we're talking about things that matter to God's heart, but we're doing it in a way that I think, again, keeps us Christ-centric. Now, to do that, I've established three foundational principles for this entire series that I want to remind us of one more time, because they're essential. Number one, Jesus did not come to incite a political revolution. Jesus came to inspire a kingdom movement. And you and I are privileged to be a part of God's kingdom movement through Jesus Christ. I mean, how cool is that, that God includes us in this? The second thing that we've, we've laid down as a, an underpinning for this series is that our citizenship in God's kingdom matters more 
than any earthly citizenship. Now, don't get me wrong. Whenever I travel abroad, I am honored to pull out my passport. I am honored to be a citizen of the United States of America. But I am reminded that it is not my highest citizenship. My greatest and most important citizenship that informs the way I live out my life here on this earth is my citizenship in God's kingdom. And the third principle that's guiding us in this series is that though we may identify with a political party, our identity is found in Jesus Christ. Who we are and whose we are are the two most significant things when it comes to how we engage in politics. Now that said, we're going to continue our series this morning by focusing on one of the most challenging and difficult topics any election season, and that is the value and the preservation of life. You cannot talk about the value and preservation of life without getting into some highly controversial and very sensitive topics. You just can't avoid it. And so this morning as we come to this topic, we're going to come at this topic in two ways. We're going to come to it from our head, and we're also going to come to it from our heart. Because when it comes to an issue like this, both matter. In fact, everything we've been talking about in this series has to engage both the heart and the head. And so we're going to talk about this series and and this topic this morning, and we're going to build a biblical framework for what the Bible teaches about the value of life and the preservation of life. There is a lot today we are not going to touch on. There are a lot of topics we just simply won't get into because of time. We're not going to talk about capital punishment. We're not going to talk about self-defense and gun rights. They're important topics. And if you're in one of our connection groups, you're going to get the opportunity to unpack it this week. should be very exciting. But today, we want to focus on these topics from both heart and head. And to do this, I want to remind us of a topic that should inform us politically and should inform everything about our life that we touched on last weekend. And then I want to expound on it a bit. I want to talk about, for just a moment, Christian ethics. Last weekend, we noted that though people tend to use the term Christian ethics or the word ethics uh, interchangeably with the word morals, they are not synonymous. They are different words. The idea of ethics comes from a Greek word, ethos, which speaks to the collective values and philosophies of a culture or a society. Morality or morals comes from a Greek word, mores, which means habits, customs, or practices. So think of it this way. Our ethics focus on what is right, while our morals focus on what is acceptable. Think of our ethics as a moral map of sorts. It is a moral map that provides us a framework from which we view life and for how we navigate through very difficult issues and topics. The question this morning is, where is our Christian ethos defined? In other words, how do we determine what our ethics should be as followers of Jesus Christ? Well, our ethics come from two places, from the nature of God and from the Word of God. And we need both of them to inform us. 
both of them help us to see life properly and help us to know how to weigh in on issues that matter most to God and where we should land on those issues. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove, or the word there is approve, what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. How is it that we determine what the will of God is? How do we know what is good and pleasing and acceptable and perfect in God's eyes? Well, that comes through our Christian ethics. It comes through the worldview that we have through the lenses of God's nature and the lenses of God's word. But when you talk about ethics, especially as it relates to this issue, of life, the value of life, and the preservation of life, you've got to widen that conversation. And you've got to widen it to include three other aspects of ethics that are really important and weigh into this topic. First of all, bioethics. Now, what are bioethics? They are the moral discernment about medical practice and policy. Bioethics are about the ethics as it relates to medical advancements, technology, and research. And it's really important because it affects everything in our world, including our policies, our politics, and the laws of our nation. Now, if you're here and you're a medical professional, you've had more than one course on bioethics. How do ethics weigh in? to our medical policies and our medical practices. My son is a fourth-year med student at Boonshoff School of Medicine. He'll be graduating in the spring of next year, headed off to residency, and he's had more than his fair share of this conversation. And we were talking about it here just recently. And namely, we were talking about a case that some of you may remember. How many of you here remember the case of Terry Schiavo? Can I see your hands? We have a picture, I believe. In 1990, Terry Schiavo uh, was found unconscious by her husband. She was comatose. And two and a half months following that episode, she was medically determined to be in a permanent vegetative state without any hope of recovery. The case actually went on for 15 years. Dozens of court hearings and court proceedings uh, and court decisions about this case. Most notably, in 2003, her feeding tube was removed by court order. Uh, The Florida Congress actually stepped in and passed a law called Terry's Law, which required the reinsertion of the tube in Terry Schiavo. The Florida Supreme Court overturned the ruling And it went all the way up to the President's office and the United States Congress where they actually passed a law and a a policy about what should happen in the case of Terry Schiavo. 
in March of 2005, her tube was permanently removed, and two weeks later, she passed away. It was a controversial ruling, controversial topic in our country, I remember, for 15 years. And the question is, which was right and which was wrong? It brings into focus another aspect of ethics that are important when you talk about the value of life and the preservation of life, and that is situational ethics. Now, situational ethics are simply the doctrine of flexibility about the moral application, the, the, the application of moral laws to the circumstances of life. It has to do with cases where there's not black and white, where there are differing opinions, differing interests, different uh, views of this that don't have a clear direction forward. So in the case of bioethics, bioethics is always asking the question, how far is too far and how much is too much. With situational ethics, the question is always this, is there really only one acceptable way to do things? Is there only one ethical right and wrong? So how many of you remember Dr. Jack Kevorkian? I believe we had a picture of him as well. I mean, he had the headlines right in the early 1990s, actually long before that. But between 1990 and 1998, he became a champion of physician-assisted suicides, helping actually to end the life of 130 patients. Now, what's interesting is that media labeled him, much of the media labeled him as Dr. Death. But to a lot of people, he was a hero. He was the guy that was actually helping people to have a merciful end of life instead of having long weeks or months of suffering and pain. And so the controversy was, situationally, is it acceptable for a doctor, a medical professional, to step into a patient's life and actually determine whether they should live or die? Interestingly enough, of those 130 patients, uh, an estimated 60% of them were not terminally ill patients. 13 of those patients reported no pain that they were experiencing in life. 19 of them died within one day, 24 hours of meeting Dr. Kevorkian. You ask yourself, is there an acceptable way to do this? Where does God weigh in when it comes to situational ethics? So you have our Christian ethics, you have bioethics, you have situational ethics, and then let me widen it out one more to address what we're talking about in this series. There are what are called political ethics, and we're all dealing with them right now. Because political, politically, we are all asking ourselves some pretty profound ethical questions right now, aren't we? Which candidate can most be trusted? Which candidate is going to keep their promises? Which candidate most aligns to a moral position on the most significant issues that matter to us as Christ followers? Those are really ethically empowered and charged uh, decisions that we have to make. They're tough. And when you think of this idea of political ethics, it's not just the electorate. Political ethics has to do 
with the moral judgments that are made as it relates to public policy and political action. And when you talk about political ethics, you break it into two parts. First of all, there are political processes which have to do with the candidates, with the officials, and what they do when nobody else is watching. And political policy. What are the policies that are being advanced, the laws that are being put into motion? And how are they going to affect my life? And how are they going to affect our religious liberty as Christ followers? So what's the question of political ethics? Well, well, let me introduce it to you with a um, kind of a thought experiment that many of you will be familiar with. Here's kind of what political ethics are about. If a tree falls in a forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? And that's kind of what political ethics are really all about. The, in the ethics as it relates to um, political process, the question that's being asked is this. Does the end justify the means? If doing wrong actually produces good, then is it really wrong? Okay, so right now I want you to think interrogation techniques. I want you to think specifically about waterboarding. What is acceptable and what isn't acceptable when it has to do with the end in mind? When it comes to the ethics of political process, they're not concerned about the means or the ends. They're concerned about the conflict of the ends. So in the case of justice around the world, what matters more? The justice and the rights of a nation and its citizens or the justice of the citizens of the world? There's actually a national conversation going on right now about globalization. And how much are we responsible for other nations of the world? How much are we responsible for other citizens, the citizens of the globe? And, and, and in most cases historically, the nation and its citizens were always put first. The debate right now is, should that be the other way? Should the citizens of the world matter more than the citizens of our country? I'll let you chew on that one. I'll let you think about it this week and pray about it. Because let me tell you why it's so important. It will influence our foreign policy and it will influence our standing in this world. Around the globe, the place of America will matter based on the outcome of that ethic. These are important topics. And we think about the preservation, the value of life, we've got to begin with understanding the framework, and that's the head piece of it, but there's a heart piece of it. And the heart piece of it comes from God's Word. It's what does God say about life? What does God say about the value, the preservation of human life? How much does it really matter? How important is it? And where does our responsibility begin and end when it comes to life? And where does God begin and end when it comes to life? That is a critical question that every single one of us must answer as we move in to this year's election. Let me just give you today's big idea. Here it is. 
the Bible builds an airtight case for the sanctity of human life. The Bible builds an airtight case for the sanctity of human life. Human life is determined by God. That's what Genesis chapter 1 teaches us. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. According to Scripture, human life is determined by God. But there's another aspect to that, and that's this. Human life begins before birth. You go to a few chapters later in Genesis, chapter 25, verses 21 through 23. Listen to the story of Isaac. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, Rebekah, because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies, this would be Jacob and Esau, jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples, from within you will be separated. Now here's what's so interesting about this. The word in this text for babies is the identical word that is used throughout the entire New Testament for children who have been born. In fact, 4,900 times that word appears in the Old Testament alone. And it refers, that same word refers to children who have been born. So the reality is this, according to the way God looks at it, a child is a child whether a child has been born or whether a child has not yet been born. A child matters to God because God is the author and the giver and the creator of life. Now that is consistent throughout the entirety of the Bible. Let me give you two illustrations of the power of life prior to birth, two illustrations from the Old Testament, two illustrations from the New. Job graphically explains and describes what birth is like. Here's what it says. Job chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. You formed me with your hands. You made me. You guided my conception and formed me in the womb. You clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit my bones and sinews together. You gave me life and showed me your unfailing love. My life was preserved by your care. Who was this Job? This Job was not just something in a womb. He was a someone in the womb, a very small version of the person he was going to become. We come to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says in chapter 1, verse 5, Before I formed you, he's speaking here prophetically on God's behalf. Before I formed you, God to Jeremiah, in the womb, I, God, knew you, Jeremiah. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. What a profound verse. Before he was even born, God was involved. Oh, but let's go back a little further. Before I even formed you, I knew you, which means this. God dreamed every one of us before we were ever conceived. God dreamed us 
And God then got involved in the formation of us. And God was a part of the birthing and the appointment of our lives, which means every one of us are born on purpose. There is not one person here in this auditorium today that is an accident. You may struggle with issues in your life. You may struggle with concern about what is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? But I want you to hear loud and clear this morning, you are not an accident. You are not an accident. God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your life. And I think when it comes to this idea, we we understand not only the moral implications of this, but we understand the political ramifications of this. When we talk about this issue of abortion, which continues to be a highly charged and polarized topic in America, where do we find our moral compass on this? Where do we find our way forward? Where does the compass point? And according to Scripture, it points in one direction, northward. It points to God. A medical professor, author Randy Alcorn, shares the story of a medical professor who was actually giving a kind of a challenge to his medical students. And this was the challenge. A father has syphilis. The mother has tuberculosis. Four children are conceived to the marriage. The first child is born blind. The second child dies. The third child is born both deaf and dumb. The fourth child is born with tuberculosis. The mother is pregnant again. What would be your advice? And the medical students had to wrestle through this. And one of them came to the conclusion that the only right way forward was abortion. And the medical professor said, congratulations, you have just murdered Beethoven. That's the story of Beethoven's life. That was the family he was born into. You can't get away from this fact that life matters to God, that God is the author of life, God determines life, and life begins before a birth takes place. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. Two illustrations of this from the New Testament. This idea of baby is not just found in the Old Testament being consistent of pre-born and after-born children. We have the story of John the Baptist, who the Bible reads, We read about it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and here's what it says. In the sixth month, so at the end of the second trimester of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now here's what's so interesting about the story. There are things happening spiritually with John the Baptist prior to his birth. There is a spiritual connection taking place while he's still in the womb in the second trimester. And what's also profound is this word again here, that she had a baby in her. It is the same Greek word now in the New Testament that is used of physical born children. It speaks of Jesus. It spoke of babies that came to him to be blessed by him. Same exact Greek 
word. And then we have the example of Jesus. The Bible tells us about it, Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Notice here that the gospel writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is using the exact same reference to the child's conception and the fact that it is a child all in the same phrase. What's also profound about this to think about, especially as it relates to the journey now of Mary to where Elizabeth was, that journey would have been about 10 days from the point of conception. Now follow this. The implantation of a child is not believed to happen and occur until day six. The full implantation is not done until about day 12, which means it is highly probable that Jesus Christ was not even yet fully implanted in Mary's womb when she traveled to see Elizabeth and the conception was celebrated. There was something happening. There was a life that was in that body that mattered to God. There is no doubt about it. All through Scripture, you have this airtight case being built for the sanctity of human life. I know there are a lot of people that don't like to talk about this. I know a lot of churches will not touch this with a 10-foot pole, but we've got to have the moral fortitude and courage to say what the Bible teaches when it comes to these really tough issues. If we don't, who will? If we lose our moral compass and our moral voice in this world, then where will it be? And just one other footnote on this. If you ask most Christians, where was Jesus born? Most Christians would say Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 1. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. If you take the totality of Scripture, Jesus was not born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Nazareth nine months earlier when he became flesh inside of Mary's womb. And can you imagine how different life would be today if Jesus had not been born? The Bible builds an airtight case for life. The Bible says God determines it. The Bible makes it very, very clear that life begins before birth. And the Bible also makes this clear as we close. Every life matters, regardless of age, regardless of parentage, regardless of stage of development, regardless of mental, physical um, difficulties and limitations. Every single life matters to God and has value. The psalmist talks about this in Psalm 139. 
verses 13 through 16, you made all the delicate, listen to the language, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.